We're delighted to have Professor Sunshine Hilligus, who's in the Departments of Political Science in the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Uh, Professor Hilligus is also the director of the Duke Initiative on Th Survey Mes Methodology. She's published widely in the areas of political behavior, campaigns and elections, survey methods, public opinion, and information technology and politics. Recently, she published the Cambridge University Press book, Making Young Voters, Converting Civic Attitudes into Civic Action. Uh, Professor Hilligus is also a Stanford University PhD, and we're delighted she's come in uh, to moderate this panel. Over to Great. you. Thank you, Brandis, and uh, thank you all. Please um, you know, eat your lunches as you also um, learn will consider us to be the, the dessert course. Um, be, because I asked the, the panelists to um, you know, speak for just a few minutes, and yet these are people who are you know, members of my dissertation committee and I have absolutely no control over them, um, I expect them to go longer than expected. So I want to, to briefen their introductions um, so that, that I can and get them talking and hopefully get some of your questions in um, as well. So we're going to start with um, David Kennedy, who's a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute and the Donald McLaughlin Professor of History Emeritus at Stanford University. Um, and he's going to start us off with some historical um, perspective. Um, and we're going to then um, have David uh, Brady join us uh, virtually. He's recovering from surgery, so can't deal with all of our uh, germs. And he's the Davies Family Senior Fellow Emeritus at the Hoover Institute and Professor of Political Science Emeritus at, at Stanford University. And finally, <coughs> Uh, Doug Rivers, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute and professor of political science at, at Stanford. Um, and he's one of the leading experts on survey methodology. And he and David Brady um, have some survey results and some slides to, to also show. So I want um, to first um, you know, thank uh, Brandis and the panelists for um, this very important topic and, and kick off with David Kennedy um, just with a, a little bit of um, context on history of primaries um, to get us uh, started. Thank you, Hillegas. If this were a prize fighting match, you could consider me as the undercard. <laughs> and we're going to get to the real meat of the matter with professors Brady and Rivers. And I understand that the, the focus of this discussion, the principal focus is, as uh, Sunshine just said, the 2024 election. But in the spirit of not knowing where you're going, if unless you know where you've been, I want to offer a few historical observations about what brought us to this juncture in the history of the Republic. Uh, the Constitutional Convention delegates in Philadelphia in 1787 debated a lot of things, but the question of how to elect a president, as the very consequential Pennsylvania delegate James Wilson said, was the most difficult of all on which we've had to decide. And we've lived ever since with some of the difficulties that they grappled with and arguably failed fully to resolve. So they debated several proposals for how to elect a president. One was election by governors of the various states. The second was election by the national legislature. The third was direct popular election, which was favored especially by James Wilson, as well as Alexander Hamilton and other advocates of what might be called a plebiscitarian style presidency. Uh, but that proposal was rejected as, quote, too likely to produce a monarchy of the worst kind to wit an elective one. So the delegates in, in Philadelphia compared popular election of the president by a poorly informed populace to referring, again, I'm quoting from the record, a trial of colors to a blind man. So finally, they agreed in the convention's closing days or even hours on this contraption we've lived with ever since called the Electoral College. So the Electoral College emerged as one of several compromises, of course, that characterized the Constitutional Convention's deliberations. So the Constitution gave the states considerable latitude as to how they might designate the members of the Electoral College, who in turn would select the president. But left unaddressed at the convention was the question of how were individuals to be nominated for the presidency in the first place. 
And for the Republic's first half century or so, there was an answer to that question. And the answer was congressional caucuses. And that practice strongly suggested that in the Republic's first half century or so, the feeling was that the center of political gravity unarguably remained with the legislative branch. That was the place where the great game of politics was to be played. And that assessment of what was the political culture of the early Republic with respect to the relation between executive and legislative branches, I think is ratified in a sense by the observation that the legislature gets discussed in Article One of the Constitution, and it takes 51 paragraphs to lay out what's happening with the legislature. Article Two, only the second article, deals with the executive branch, and that article is only 13 paragraphs long. But about a half century in, with the advent of Andrew Jackson, that political constellation of forces between legislative and executive branches began to shift. And not only did Jackson seek to expand presidential power and assert his independence from Congress, not least of all by issuing more vetoes in his eight years than all six of his predecessors combined had issued in the preceding nearly half century. And he also catalyzed and came to symbolize uh, a tectonic shift in the method of standing up presidential candidates, namely the party convention. And the first political party to nominate a presidential candidate actually was something called the Anti-Masonic Party, which disappeared after one very brief uh, appearance in the national arena. Um, but they held a, confer a con convention in 1831 in Baltimore where they nominated one William Wirt, former US Attorney General, for the presidency. And the lasting legacy of that short-lived party was that Baltimore convention. The electorate of free white adult males then numbered well over 1 million persons, the largest electorate in the world at that time, increasingly organized into factions or political parties, such as the founders had not envisioned. And those parties were not about to leave the nomination of their presidential candidates to a handful of congressional delegates. So quadrennial conventions became the norm for selecting presidential candidates for more than a century following the age of Jackson. And some of those conventions were truly battleground affairs, most notoriously the Democratic Convention of 1924 in Madison Square Garden, where it took two weeks and 103 ballots to nominate John W. Davis. But there were harbingers of things to come as early as that notoriously deadlocked 1924 convention. Uh, in that year, the Democratic Party held primary elections in 12 states and the Republicans in 17 states. And most of those primaries, however, were mostly beauty contests that did not oblige the delegates at the convention to vote for the winners of the popular vote in their states. Uh, and so in fact, in 1924, in both the Republican and their Democratic conventions, both John Davis and his rival Calvin Coolidge were nominated in the old fashioned way in the legendary smoke-filled room by the same party bosses that have been controlling the nominating machinery for nearly a century. And that pattern held for another roughly a generation or so. Uh, in 1952, Estes Kefauver, some of you in this room will remember his name, uh, won 13 out of 15 Democratic primaries, but he lost the nomination to Adlai Stevenson, who had campaigned in exactly zero primaries. So the modern history of primaries really begins nearby here in the state of Oregon in 1910, when Oregon legislated the first binding presidential primary election. And in that era of so-called progressive reforms, uh, primaries were thought to be one among many devices, including the initiative, the referendum, the recall, the direct election of senators that were aimed at making the political process more inclusive, more transparent, more participatory, more directly in the hands of we the people. So in short, the cure for the ills of democracy in that era, it was widely held, was simply more democracy. And in a country, in a culture where the concept of democracy approaches the status of a civil religion, it was then and remains ever since difficult to argue with that. California under its governor Hiram Johnson soon thereafter followed suit for the Oregon as did a handful of other primary states, some of whom then more or less quickly abandoned the very format they had legislated so that after a few electoral cycles 
And as late as 1960, Republicans held primaries in just 11 states and Democrats in 10, perhaps most famously in West Virginia, which was dispositive not for the electoral votes that it yielded, but for demonstrating to the party chieftains that a Roman Catholic could win the popular vote in an overwhelmingly Protestant state. And then came 1968, which rang down the final curtain uh, on the already fading era of consequential conventions. Democrats again held primaries in 10 states in 1968. Eugene McCarthy prevailed in six of those, Robert Kennedy in four of them. But the nomination went to Hubert Humphrey, who, like Adlai Stevenson in 1952, had not campaigned in a single primary. Now, what many regarded as that high-handed behavior and Humphrey's subsequent humiliating loss triggered drastic reforms and ushered in the era in which we've lived ever since. Uh, Minnesota Representative Donald Fraser, South Dakota Senator George McGovern, undertook to rewrite Democratic Party rules for selecting presidential nominees and inaugurated the era of primaries in virtually every state or their near equivalent uh, caucuses. Um, Democrats retained a bit more of the legacy process by granting votes to slightly more so-called superdelegates than Republicans, but in both cases, in both parties, the role of the institutional party and its leaders in the individual states was markedly reduced in deference to the vox populi that was registered in the primary election booth. And ever since 1968, if not earlier, the national conventions have become little more than what I would describe as infomercials uh, that essentially publicize decisions that have long since been made in the primary through the primary process. So I'm going to leave it to the other members of this panel to examine further what have been the consequences of that transformation. But I can't help note that the, the shades of those founders like James Wilson and Alexander Hamilton must, I guess, it must be looking on with wonder and fascination and maybe more than a touch of second thoughts as they observe the evolution of the kind of plebiscitarian presidency that they had championed. So we've evolved from cozy congressional caucus to noisy convention to wide open primaries in the age of fragmented, manipulated, and often deliberately misleading information. Now that may be more democracy, but it's probably not what they anticipated. So when we contemplate the actual consequences, with consequences which will be the subject of the remainder of this panel's discussion, as distinct from the theoretical justification of the institutions of direct democracy, conspicuously including primary elections, I at least can't help recollect James Madison's warning about a trial of colors by a blind man or by, I can't help recollecting his prediction that the kind of plebiscitarian presidency which primary elections have nurtured might lead to, I'm quoting him again, a monarchy of the worst kind to wit an elective one. And those kinds of thoughts prompt me to at least explore a near heretical question. And that is, is there such a thing as too much democracy? Thank you, David. We're now going to turn to another David, um, who I mentioned his title, but haven't mentioned that he's also a former deputy director of Hoover, um, a recipient of um, amazing teaching awards, a former member of my dissertation committee. Um, he is uh, joining us virtually on Zoom, and um, he and Doug Rivers have been working on a survey project that can help us um, in thinking about what things might look like in 2024. And so, um, David, if you'll just give us about five minutes of, of what you have found and a little bit about the, the project, that would be great. So uh, I'm going to deal with uh, the United States Congress. And uh, this is uh, from a survey that uh, we did for UGov, did for the Hoover Institutions, about uh, 2,500 voters. And so in my view, what I want to show is what's happened to Congress over time and the 2024 election will give us the same sort of Congress. But I want to talk about the role of primaries. So if you look at the question, do you favor a 15 week abortion ban? If you look across all voters, it's 50.2% that say they do. If you look at Democratic primary voters and Republican primary voters, now what I'm using here 
is I'm just using uh, strong people who say they're strong Democrats and people who say they're strong Republicans, since they're much more likely to vote in primaries. If I were to add to that uh, strong Democrats who were uh, ideologically left and the, and the converse for Republicans, strong Republicans, I, I could push those numbers out further. But what I want to say is what happens in many instances is that primaries give us candidates that are further left and further right than where the average voter would be. And so moderates, uh, it, who uh, actually as recent research has shown, decide elections. They are voting in congressional elections for candidates they probably wouldn't nominate on their own. So uh, the second slide, now that is, we do know that uh, election turnout, uh, this is election turnout by 2000 to 2020. And we do know that uh, primary turnout's about 20%. We know that it varies dramatically uh, by state. And probably one of the great examples of that is uh, Congressman Riggleman from Virginia, who had a very strong heritage uh, support score of 95%. He was a libertarian. He officiated at the, a gay marriage of one of his college friends. And in a very small turnout of about 34 people, uh, 3,400 people or less, he lost uh, the nomination to be a congressman from that district to a fundamental, uh, to a fundamentalist preacher who, who uh, argued that uh, he shouldn't be congressman because he had done that. So uh, the this, this level of the turnout makes a difference. So this just is some uh, quick examples of, um, of what I, the point I was making. You can see you can see here that on the minimum wage, fifty point two percent favor it, uh, but eighty four percent of primary voters favor it, and uh, Democratic and Republican primary voters are fourteen. You can see the same sort of results with build the wall, cancel student debt, abortion ban at fifteen weeks, and agree with Dobbs. Uh, so the bottom line is uh, this uh, this is consistent across a set of other, and if you look compared to all voters by primary voters, uh, in my, my measure of it, you can see that on aid to the poor, military environment, uh, there, the differences are uh, consistent across these set of issues. And then it's also uh, less true with Medicare but, uh, and there are some other issues where it's not, but in general, that first slide is, uh, that in general, that first slide is correct. Now, this is the, so I, I then took the Americans of Democratic Action, which is a uh, liberal group that chooses uh, roughly 20 votes, sometimes a little more or less, in a given congressional, uh, in a given Congress, and they say they score members. So if uh, they say you should have voted this way on 20 issues and you vote that way on 20 issues, you get a score of 100. Now, I think what's interesting in this is uh, if you look at the average House ADA scores, in every single year, the ADA losers, and this is incumbent Democrats who lost from 2000 to 2020, in every single year, the average ADA loser score is below the uh, average score for the uh, Democrats in the House of Representatives, which means it's the moderates, the people who would compromise, who are going to lose. And even more interesting, here are the ADA primary scores of losers uh, who lost in a primary. Now, note uh, here in uh, 20, 2008, uh, the average uh, ADA who uh, score of someone who lost in a primary was 100. Here it's 92.85. 80 uh, was close, but 95.76, 95.83. And, and the reason that's important is so you look like somebody like Crowley, who lost to AOC in a pre reasonably low turnout election, he had a score of 100. The congressman who got beat uh, in Massachusetts by Ayanna Presley, those uh, both had very high ADA scores. They were very liberal. And the problem is that sends a signal. So when they're getting beat on their left, and I'll show you the same thing happens for the Republicans quickly, when they're getting beat, the, the pressures on that side, the idea of compromise moving a little bit to the right from where they are is not significant. You don't have too many of those. And, and what you have is the pressure is not to not to compromise. 
And now uh, for the Republicans, I use their own measures, which is a heritage score. And you can see the same thing for the Republicans. You can see that they, uh, that who loses average score of the general after 2012, the people who lose have lower uh, uh, heritage scores and the primary election losers have much higher scores. So the same thing's true for the Republicans. The people who lose in the general election are uh, more moderate and the people who lose in the primaries are getting beat from people who are taking them on from the right. Now, the result of this is it seems to me the number of the number of uh, Republicans with zeros on the ADA and the number of Democrats with the hundreds, those increase. If I drop that number from ADA score of 100 to 95, it, it would, of course, shoot up. And this uh, this is this interesting. Again, take camera. This is the number of Democrats. Uh, with a 20% or more, uh, with a 20, with at least a 20 heritage, with a 20 or below heritage score, uh, and or above, sorry. And this is the number of Republicans who have a score uh, 20 or above ADA score. And you can see, since those two scores come in, it, it just drops off. So you end up with the House of Representatives hollowed out. Moderates lose in the general election. And in they lose uh, in prim they lose in primaries. Daniel Thompson's book, uh, looking at state legislators, which is a, a a very good source of where candidates come from, she shows definitively that moderates are much less likely to run. And the most probable reason for that is money comes to people who are on the left and on the right. The end result is you get a House of Representatives where moderates lose general elections where even on the left and the right uh, from both parties, there's very little uh, incentive. In fact, there's disincentives to compromise on legislation. And then you get uh, these sorts of results where you don't get much in the way of compromise. Now, I'm gonna finish quickly with the Senate where it's a little harder to do for the Senate because you don't have so many elections. But again, know uh, that, and I'm now using the 88 scores solely, for our average Republican ADA score, 20, note that the losers were 32, 7, 40, 4, 18, and uh, so on, uh, so on and so forth. So the people who lose in the Senate, same, pretty much the same story. And in the second part, this is the Democratic average losers ADA score. And the post-2012 Obama, that's what you get. Here, here in the 2014 election, six Democrats lose in that election. Their average score is 65, which is well below the average Democratic score. Here it's 89 to 60, 89 to 65. And, and the end result of this is you get a Congress, a Senate, where the number of uh, people with uh, zero, zero scores or 100% scores increase dramatically. And what you get is uh, a House and a Senate, and I expect the 24 election will give us the same result. House and Senate with uh, where members, uh, moderates are hollowed out. And the end result is there's uh, much less likelihood of compromise. And that's exactly what we see in the Congress. And that's it. I'm not too far off my time. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs> Especially given the uh, computer difficulties. Uh, next up, uh, Doug Rivers is going to um, tell us a little bit about the presidential um, race coming up and uh, take a, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've begun uh, a new project uh, here at Hoover in collaboration with a group at uh, Yale and Arizona State uh, to conduct the uh, biggest uh, ever panel study uh, in a presidential election. Um, so we're taking a group of 100,000 people and interviewing um, three quarters of them uh, every four months and the remaining one quarter every month. Um, and with the idea that we will be able to uh, trace uh, changes uh, happening over what is likely to be quite a momentous election. Um, and uh, thank you very much, Condi, for uh, supporting the project. Uh, mm -hmm. that uh, wouldn't have been possible without the uh, Hoover's participation. Um, the, we're undergoing a, a period of remarkable electoral change. Uh, rural areas have become um, so overwhelmingly Republican 
that uh, you know they're the basis of uh, Republican wins and elections. And suburban areas that used to be uh, reliably Republican have become competitive or actually uh, uh, marginally more Democratic. Uh, and then one thing I didn't have on my bingo card is that minorities. Uh, their support for Democrats would um, exhibit some erosion. Um, so we're in a very confusing time and, and it's created problems for polling. Um, notoriously, we've seen misses, that is overestimates of what the Democratic vote would be, particularly in uh, the Midwest. Um, but at, at a more fundamental level, we don't really understand, we understand who has moved, but we don't really understand why. Uh, they've moved and what is the uh, dynamic that's making this work. So I thought I'd talk a little bit about where we are uh, today. Um, so you've seen uh, recent polls that show basically an even race between Biden and Trump in 2024. Um, the problem with that is these are polls that had the margin off by four or more points in 2020. Um, so that an even race is one uh, that is uh, certainly in, in the places that count the battleground states uh, is going to be something that's six, eight, or even 10 points Republican, uh, which is causing uh, alarm uh, on the Democratic side. Um, I'll show you some data that we just collected in the last uh, week that shows what the problem is for Democrats. Um, so we asked people uh, who did a better job as president, um, Trump or Biden. Um, and uh, we've divided the group into three, three groups. Um, on uh, the blue bars are Democrats. And so not surprisingly, you see that most of them think Biden has done a better job than Trump. And the red bars are Republicans who believe overwhelmingly that Trump did a better job than Biden. Um, but overall, you can see that the Republican support levels uh, across the board are more consistent than Democrats are. And then uh, among independents, uh, they're uh, more on the uh, Trump side than the Biden side. Um, Republicans need independence to win a national election. Um, it's not good enough to uh, be even among independents, but the sort of majorities you're seeing at the moment uh, are giving you know, a view that uh, Biden is in serious trouble. Um, I wouldn't take that too seriously at this point. The reliability of polls at this point is a predictor of an election a year out aren't great, uh, but uh, the arm bells should be going off with numbers like this. Um, you know, and typically what happens is, uh, you know, you have a incumbent president and you have a lot of alternatives on the other side. And so people can imagine their preferred alternative and they're gonna be more in favor of that um, than, uh, you know, the devil they know, the, you know, the ideal alternative. Um, what we're seeing, though, this year, of course, is uh, that the alternative is someone they understand very well, which is Donald Trump. Um, and um, so that kind of dynamic uh, isn't likely to help uh, Biden now. Um, we also ask people, uh, you know, what they think is going to happen in the election, who's going to win. Um, so we said, you know, give us the probability that Biden will win or Trump will win or somebody else will win. Um, so there are about 15% of the people who think someone else is going to win, which seems improbable at this point. Um, overall, what you saw is about a 60-40 advantage for Trump over Biden. Um, what these plots show is the actual distribution of those uh, probabilities. Um, so again, the, uh, the uh, blue... Well, on the left, we have Democrats, and the blue here is what's the probability Biden will win. Um, and uh, you can see that most Democrats think Biden will win, but the majority think it's going to be close to a 50-50 election, which as a professional pollster in this world seems to me a relatively accurate perception of where we are. Um, there are um, 
you know, a small set of Democrats that believe there's a hundred percent chance that Biden will win. Um, there's a bigger set of Republicans, the red over that, uh, uh, excuse me, a bigger set of Democrats who think that uh, Trump is going to win uh, with 100% probability. So they're quite pessimistic about Biden. Um, on the uh, Republican side, what you see is they overwhelmingly think Trump will win. Uh, there's very little uh, doubt. Um, so Republicans do believe that Trump is going to win the uh, 2024 election. And so they're not, um, whereas Democrats here have a huge amount of uncertainty. Now, the, the case for the Biden campaign is, well, maybe this is like uh, 1983. Uh, Ronald Reagan did not have great poll numbers uh, through most of 1983, and then went on to win an overwhelming majority in the 1984 election as the economy picked up. I think they're their idea is, well, we can overcome all this bad stuff with a good economy and Trump is the Republican nominee. Um, I think that is somewhat of a misperception. Um, in the old days, the famous James Carville line, it's the economy stupid. Uh, you don't need to know who the candidates are. You can predict the outcome of the election by the state of the economy. Um, that was true. Uh, you know, through basically the 1990s, uh, but it's no longer true today. Uh, so let me show you a couple pieces of data on that. First, asking people, uh, is the economy getting better or worse? Now, objectively, I think it's a little hard to say the economy is not getting better now uh, than it was uh, a year or two ago. Um, but um, the difference between Democrats and Republicans on this is like they're living on different planets. Um, the overwhelming majority of Republicans at the moment say that the economy is getting worse, uh, not uh, uh, better or the same. Uh, Democrats, um, about, I think it's 37%, think that the economy is getting better, um, but uh, you know it's not an overwhelming uh, um, support for uh, the economic performance. Um, if you go to the Ronald Reagan question, which is, are you better off now? Um, so Reagan's famous question in the 1984 presidential debates, are you better off four years ago uh, now than you were four years ago? Um, this is a standard one that we've asked in polling forever that we usually ask a year ago because people actually don't remember very well four years ago. Um, and uh, again, what you see here is the overwhelming fraction of Republicans say that they're worse off today than they were a year ago. Uh, among Democrats, uh, a higher fraction say they're worse off than better off, um, which is uh, not what you would expect at all. Um, but you see this polarization in people's perceptions of whether they're better off or worse off. Now, it turns out what you can do with a panel study uh, where you keep re-interviewing the same people is you can look at what they told you their family income was a year ago. Well, it turns out their family incomes are up, but that's unrelated to how, they, how well they say they're doing. You look at unemployment. Well, uh, there's no relationship between unemployment and what people are saying about how they're doing. Uh, you would think that maybe if inflation's the problem, that renters, where you know rents are up substantially, uh, would be more negative than homeowners. In fact, it's the reverse. Um, so what we have is a situation where people's economic evaluations appear to be driven by their political beliefs rather than their political beliefs driven by uh, the state of the economy. Uh, the result of that is a world where we expect much less of responsiveness to a better economy in 2024. Uh, and the result of that is, uh, I think, you know, we may see quite a different pattern than what we would have seen 20 or 30 years ago when incumbent could ride a, a good economy to a re-election. Thank you, Doug. And um, I, I'm going to ask a single question that each of you, I hope, will try to answer. I, I have a page of it uh, of different questions, but I want to give the audience a chance to ask. 
Um, David Brady pointed out this pattern that is becoming um, increasingly apparent that right the, the 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 primaries are resulting and contributing to um, more extremism. Um, turnout is low, um, and and so the question is is there have been discussions about various reforms um, and you know comparing how we select nominees today relative to how it was done. Um, historically, like, should we make a change? Um, and not to say that it's possible. And so this is a little bit of, of stealing a question from Brandis from um, the previous panel. But I, I wondered in light of what we see in terms of public opinion and the translation of public opinion into, uh, you know, the elected officials, you know, is there a reform that you could imagine um, might um, make a change. So I'll start, uh, David Kennedy, with you. Well, l let me say by way of preface to my answer that you can't be a student of history for very long without developing a keen sense of irony. Uh, because the, the primary election mechanism when it was first introduced 100 years ago, and as it now has dominated the scene, was justified, <clears throat> not unreasonably, as a way to make the political process more responsive to the popular will and so on. But in practice, because of the polarization that it has nurtured, it's made it more difficult for the political system to express the will of the majority. Uh, as David Brady slides about abortion, minimum wage and other issues uh, instruct us. So there, there's something really perverse about the actual consequences of something that was accepted in the culture at large as a majoritarian leaning reform. Now, having said all that, uh, one doesn't need simply to imagine reforms in the primary process. There are some already out there, including in this state and Washington state and a handful of others. It's called the open primary. So you try to open the primary system up to participants from whatever party. Supposedly that creates incentives for candidates to move to the center. I'm gonna leave it to people with more current data than I have as to, to, to determine whether or not that has actually worked. My impression is that it hasn't had much of an effect. And what other reforms might be out there? Again, I leave to the more current experts. Great, thank you. Uh, David Brady. Thing. Oh. I, I, one thing that struck me in your talk was you talked about the humiliating loss of Humphrey who had won zero primaries and then the modern primary system that was the McGovern-Fraser reforms that led to McGovern's quite a bit more <laughs> humiliating more. loss. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> But Doug, okay, so but I put you on the spot. Are there any reforms that you think we should take seriously and and uh, you know advocate for? Well, I think anything tweaking primaries would be you know the current system is not a good one in terms of um, measuring public opinion, uh, selecting effective leaders. Uh, uh, but the you know the basic problem is polarization that. Uh, when the two parties don't overlap at all, then there's the centrifugal force that pushes uh, the candidates selected to be too extreme. David Brady, are you still with us? I am. Great. I'm just not, I'm just not with you visually, um, which, is probably <laughs> a break, which is probably a break for all of you. Um, my, my view on that is that the reforms in California, uh, sort of, I think, in the Senate election, where you got, you're going to get a very liberal Democrat versus a less liberal Democrat. So I, I, don't think, I don't think that works well, particularly in states like California. Uh, I favor ranked choice voting. And I'm, I'm with Doug. I think anything that could tweak those primaries would be a beneficial thing. But as long as you get these uh, sort of people who are in the middle, who unfortunately are less interested in politics, that constitutes the problem. And so I've been thinking pretty hard about what is it you could do to increase that. And frankly, I have nothing of value to say on that. <laughs> I think it's really hard to do, and I don't have an answer as to how to do it. <laughs> Thank you, David. Um, so with that, I think we should have a few questions um, from the audience if you have them. If not, I have a backup of pages of things that I could um, ask if not. Great. Hey, Dan. So for Doug and for, uh, and, and for Dave, obviously partisanship is, is driving these other uh, opinions on things, even as 
your own personal finances, but you were looking at everybody in, in these surveys. What about those who are the potential uh, swing voters? Are they any less sort of tied to partisan bias in their views here? If we just looked at them, would we say the economy could matter in determining the election or the perceived state of the economy? I, I, if I can take that question first, uh, uh, Brett Parker and uh, John Firejohn and I published a paper last year uh, where we looked at uh, what Doug, the point, we made the point, Doug, look, we looked at data back to 1990 and found out that over this time period, uh, your political party affiliation was much more important in determining what you thought the economy was like, whether, whether it was good or not. And when we looked at independents, people who said flat out they were independents, they were the only ones that actually correlated positively with a huge set of measures. What's the status of the stock uh, stock market? What's the status? So yes, the independents and the people who were actually always mostly in the center, they they were uh, much more accurate in their assessment of where the economy was. So one quick point here. Um... Round numbers, they're about 30% of the population's Democrats, maybe 26, 27% of Republicans, and the remainder, which is, I don't know, 45 or so, are independents. Um, so that would make you think there's this big group of people who are, uh, you know, they average out to normal people. Um, <laughs> but it turns out that there's a big chunk of them who are basically apolitical and don't vote. Uh, then there are two chunks that um, don't like the Republicans because the Republicans are too left wing and they don't or they don't like the Democrats because they're too right wing. Uh, <laughs> and those groups vote overwhelmingly uh, like they're, you know, uh, complete partisans. The set of independents who are actually swing voters is probably on the order of 10, 12 percent of the population. Um, so it's you're, you're hanging at your thread on a small group of, of people. And Doug, isn't it also the case that, that what we know about independent voters suggests that they're, as you said, the least engaged, they vote less frequently than others, and the least well-informed? Except the ones that are highly partisan. <laughs> Can I, I want to comment on that. It's, what Doug says is correct, but if you, there's also a set of people who, when they ask, if you're a Democrat or Republican, are you a strong Democrat or not so strong Democrat? And those people, uh, if you say you're a not strong Democrat or a not strong Republican, those people are much more likely to switch their vote in an election. And Biden did very well with them, say, in 2020. So the set's a little bigger than Doug makes it out to be. Not much, but bigger. 13%. <laughs> All right, we have another question here. Addressing the independent voters you're talking about, is there a way that the primaries could better address the independent voter? And also, could you include the uh, any uh, comments that you have on the growth of the independent voter in current times versus the amount of polarity that is occurring? What is the relationship, if any? Doug, do you want to take that? Uh, as I understand your question, uh, you know, we've had rising numbers of people calling themselves independents, a bit of a rise over the last uh, 50 years. Um, at the same time, you've had polarization. And um, and so the primary explanation, which is due to Mo Fiorina, who's sitting somewhere over there, uh, <laughs> is that it's sorting, that uh, what's happened is um, not that people have changed, but that the parties have changed. So there are no more liberal Republicans or conservative Democrats. Um, and the result is that uh, voters then sort themselves into these groups. Um, so I don't know if that's responsive. But... I, I, agree, I agree with that. Uh, I would say that the Republican Party is uh, more homogenous on that dimension. That is, if you look at them, there are more people who say they're conservative. The Democrats uh, are a little more uh, heterogeneous on that. They still have, uh, as you look at these surveys week by week, you've got the economist surveys, 
and Democrats run between 40 and 35, 30% who say they're either moderate or conservative, much smaller proportions say they're conservative, but the Democratic, the Democrats are more heterogeneous. So I know I'm supposed to moderate, but let me just say, I mean, Beyond the Persuadable Voter being a book that I wrote in 2009, so if we wanted to talk a little bit about swing voters, I just want to go back to the point that Jonathan Rodden made, and that is, is that when you look at the preferences within these coalitions, that there's quite a bit of heterogeneity, right? There's quite a bit of variation, and the question then becomes, are there any issues on which those coalitions will think that it is so at stake in the election that they are willing to not vote with the party or not vote with their history of voting with the party, even if they don't have a, a strong identity. And so um, that's just something that I think is is still in question and, and a question that um, I will not have you guys answer right now because I see another hand with my colleague, um, Peter Fever. Um, so we'll let you uh, jump in. But I want you guys to, to think about if there's any particular issues coming up in, in this cycle. Peter. Actually, my question is your question reworded slightly, which is, do you see uh, vulnerabilities in Trump's support? Are there issues or uh, perspectives that cause Republicans to lose interest in him or that cause independents to lose interest in him or that cause Democrats to flee back to Biden. You you presented uh, sort of a static picture. I'm wondering what are the things that might move? I guess that was to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I don't see any. I mean, the amazing thing about support for Trump is it doesn't seem to move at all. Um, <laughs> one of the things we asked last week was we went through all the um, indictments and uh, asked people, uh, you know, do you think he's guilty? And then do you think he will be found guilty, uh, convicted of any of these? And it turns out that um, while Republicans are less likely to think he's guilty, 40% um, of them uh, say that he's likely or 50-50 chance or better of being found guilty in these cases. So I don't think like if one of these cases went to trial and he was convicted, that that would be a, um, an item that would move things much. The, there are two wedge issues at the moment. Um, abortion is one, which tends to separate off uh, moderate Republican voters. Um, you know, Trump is somebody who gets away with, uh, he, you know, appointed the Supreme Court justices that um, reverse Roe. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think anyone seriously believes deep down in his heart he's uh, um, deeply pro-life. Um, so I don't think that one cuts much against him. Um, and then the other direction, you know, the tough issues for Democrats are crime, immigration, and surprisingly, Israel. Um, so uh, David Leonhardt had a piece this week that basically went through some of our polling that showed uh, that... Uh, Support for Israel by Biden um, is something that separates Democrats a bit. Um, so I don't think there's much in in the issue space that is likely to move people against Trump. So sun, sunshine, that, that's as usual, the $24 question. So when I think of that, I, I think uh, in, rather than in terms of issue, it's how extreme candidates go. So if you look at what happens to Kerry Lake in Arizona? What happened to uh, the other uh, the guy who ran in Arizona? When you look at these people on abortion and on defense of the 2020 election being stolen on a set of issues, which I which there are others, uh, and I agree with John Rodden. There's more there. The question is, I think it's a question of how extreme candidates place themselves. They're the ones more likely. They're they're the ones more likely to lose. And uh, other than that, I'm not, so at this point, I'm not quite sure what those issues might be, but I do think Trump uh, could place himself far enough on these issues that uh, would make it, and that's what looked like happened in 2020. So for me, it's more, more a question of how far left or how far right in the case of Trump, how far right they're willing to go. And that's what I think makes these swing voters go the other way. Great. I, I think there's what we can take one last question. Um, we have one right here. Yeah. 
of American institutions. And he is anti-institution. So he is an existential threat to democratic institutions. My question is, what is the role of places like Hoover, the role, the responsibility of places like Hoover, the Republican Party, uh, you know, Democrats can only do so much. More left-leaning organizations can only do so much. The, the kinds of reforms that we're talking about in the primaries are not going to be, are not going to come into existence in time for this election. And there is, as we've heard, a very serious threat that he returns to office and threatens the values that all of us in this room are embracing. Well, the, a, a big part of the problem is that thanks to primaries, the parties as institutions have less consequential effect on vetting, recruiting, and bringing forward candidates. And again, it's one of these perverse implications of a more direct democracy uh, kind of arrangement. So I, I go back again to what I said about irony is inevitable when you study these kinds of evolution. Let me make one last observation. In my mind, at least, majoritarian outcomes are essential to the definition of democracy. You can't really have a democracy without trying to arrange for majoritarian outcomes. We have an institutional reform in the case of primaries that have, again, perversely and ironically driven us in an anti-majorian direction. There's another one that's driven not by institutional or structural reform, but simply by demography, and that has to do with the Senate. So nine states, nine states now contain just about 50% of the American population. Those states have 18% of the representation in the Senate. And that trend, thanks to distribution of population and ongoing concentration of population in, in fewer big states, that's gonna get even more severe as this century goes on. So the Senate is by its very structure, thanks to the dem dem demographic changes in the last half century or more, is increasingly a non-majoritarian institution. I don't have the answer to how we're gonna fix that is deeply embedded in the constitution, but there, there it is again. I think with that, we will um, end on that high note um, and um, try to get to the military panel um, on, on a little bit of time. Thank you.